all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and, and they you got to get them off welfare. Hello, and welcome to Cars and Comrades, where we talk about car stuff from a leftist perspective. Uh, today's episode will be focused on the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement of the late 60s and early 70s. Now, this is probably going to be a two-part episode, but we're not 100% sure yet, so uh, you'll be finding out probably around the time that we are. Uh, just don't be sad when it ends early. We'll have the second episode up uh, at the same time. So, buckle up and join us along the road to revolution, and also find us on social media, uh, because we are on some of those platforms. You can find us on Instagram at Cars and Comrades Podcast, and our Twitter account is, you guessed it, Cars and Comrades. You can also email us at carsandcomrades at gmail.com. Uh, there is a bit of a pattern there, so, you know, give that a try. Uh, we're happy to hear from listeners, so email us suggestions, complaints, potential topics, and perhaps your own questions that we might address on the air. We don't really know what we're doing yet, because uh, we did just start this podcast, so uh, we don't know what will happen to your email, but you can shoot us a message to find out. Anyway, let's get into our discussion on the labor history uh, of Detroit in the 1960s. Anyway, before we get into our discussion on the labor movement in Detroit in the 1960s, we're probably just going to start with uh, uh, talking about our own personal projects. So let's see what everybody worked on this week. Uh, Bryant, what did you work on this week? Well, before I say that, I, I don't don't we have a Facebook page also? Or are we on any, any other uh, social media? Uh, you are probably correct. Uh, whatever, you know, you can find us, just search for cars and comrades, whatever you'll find it. Um, so I have not been doing a whole lot lately, um, because it's like five degrees outside and I don't want to go out into the garage and do anything, but I did order and receive, um, you can hear the package here, ASMR type stuff, um, throttle cable for my moped. So hopefully I can get that put back together and running and riding by the time, you know, the weather's good. Um, or by the time I need to move, uh, which is coming up, uh, we'll see which happens first. And also since I last talked to y'all, I brewed some beer. I think I told you I was making a Budweiser clone. So I got some rice and, uh, six row barley and made some beer out of that. And I got a, uh, a hoppy cider also. Uh, so that's in my kegerator right now in the garage. And since it's so cold, uh, I accidentally made Applejack. So it concentrated the, uh, the cider by freeze distillation and that'll, that'll get you pretty ripped. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. That's so. the, the highest alcohol content beers in the world. That's how they do that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, tell me more about this. Hold on. I, I, I need to know more. Yeah, so, um, you know, water freezes at 32 degrees or whatever, um, yeah. or zero for the metric people. and uh, But alcohol freezes at a much lower temperature, like 20-something. And um, if you have beer or wine or whatever, or cider, and you freeze it, the, the water will freeze out at the top first, so you'll get a bunch of ice crystals floating on top, and then it'll become more concentrated. Um, ah. Yeah, and since my keg... Uh, 
the pickup is in the bottom, it sucks up all the concentrated alcohol at the bottom. The The problem with that, though, is it it concentrates everything. So um, all the like methanol and nasty stuff that gives you a hangover is also just as concentrated in there. So nice. Yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah, That's like a trick. Like when when like breweries do the like world record setting uh, uh, alcohol content beers, they're basically cheating because it's it's called like what frost distillation, but it's not technically distillation. So you can get away with still calling it beer. Even though, like, like literally the highest alcohol content beer in the world, I think was was like hundred proof. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Th- there was a few years ago, like maybe ten years ago, there was a couple different breweries that were going back and forth trying to to have the strongest beer. I think one of them was uh, Brewdog. Oh, since, yeah, Brewdog in Scotland. Yeah, and they they did um these weird uh they put the bottle in inside of like a taxidermied like squirrel skin. So that like the mouth of the animal was the mouth of the bottle. It was really weird. I didn't quite okay, understand. I, I know a really funny story about this real quick. At one point, Brewdog had the world record. I, I for, it was it was some like absurd name. And then a German company beat them. Um, so they brewed another beer to beat the German company. But because they're like Scottish or, or whatever, and they were beating a German company when once they uh, once they brewed the new beer that was the world record like strongest beer they named it Sink the Bismarck. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. Zero chill, except that it was literally frost distilled, so like a lot of chill, but you know that. <laughs> yeah, and I think there was some guy in in uh, Canada using the same method for um, desalinating seawater, so he'd like get ocean water and freeze it and you know the salty stuff would be on the bottom and the the fresh water would, would be you know ice or whatever so i don't know it's kind of a cool process very cool process indeed yeah definitely because <laughs> it's freezing it's yes <laughs> oh, yeah. make sure you guys got it <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> Well, uh, Zach, uh, Bryant, if you're done, what uh, what did you work on, Zach? Uh, I'm just waiting on parts, man. Uh, ordered a bunch of stuff for my Audi, uh, and a lot of it's coming from Germany. So just playing that old waiting game, waiting for parts to show up, and then I'm going to freeze my tuchus off and slap them in there, hopefully quickly. <laughs> yeah, I hope and, so. And correctly. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's probably the more important part. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just checking that UPS tracking now. Nice. Uh, That's it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Sorry, um, that wasn't very exciting. Then um, I'll I'll go next. Um, so I haven't really worked on too much on account of it being five degrees, and also um, I don't have the main car right now, so it's still in the shop. Um. I know in a previous um, episode, I kind of explained that I was planning on balancing my own engine internals. So the like rods and pistons and whatnot. And I was going to shave down little bits of material and get them all to be about the same weight. Um, and I decided not to do that because um, for an extra $250, a proper perce- professional would do it for me. So uh, I decided that was probably the safer method because I did have some people message me and say, hey, that's not like the proper way to do that. And I was like, yeah, 
you're probably right. I should I should leave this to a professional machine shop. So uh, I did. So yeah, I didn't. I I, I wanted to do it. Um, I'm a little disappointed that I don't get to do it now, but uh, I do feel better about how it's going to get done. So um, I made that decision, and then uh, I think just yesterday uh, I had some more parts show up. So those will be going over to the shop soon. I got a uh, ported lower intake manifold and a larger four inch intake tube. Which I saw the pictures you posted of those. They look looking yeah. good. Yeah. I, so yeah. I, at first, like, you know, usually a cold air intake doesn't really do that much. Um, and this is just a bigger one. And I was like, eh, you know, but I do I do follow the people who do who like make this stuff custom like. And so I started seeing them like post up their, you know, their actual dyno numbers on them. And, you know, they show improvements over, you know, regular K&N kits and stuff. And I was like, well, fuck, I don't know. Maybe there's something to it. So I guess it works with like it has a Venturi effect or something and whatever. Somehow that that bigger tube gets the air through faster. So uh, it's got you know, science built right into it. Yep. Something like that. So anyway, uh, more air, more gas, more power. That's the uh, that's the idea anyway. So that math checks out. Yeah. If nothing else, it'll be louder. That's what's important, right? That too. Um, I'm excited because my car, like my car's had a fucking exhaust leak forever. Um, Cause I had, it's lowered and I've gone through a couple flex pipes that just, they keep fucking shredding on speed bumps and stuff. Um, so I'm going to have no flex pipes. And so for the first time, I'm going to hear my exhaust coming out the back of the car for the first time <laughs> in life <laughs> or more. So like I've never heard any intake sounds from my car because I just hear like farting exhaust the whole time. So this will be really cool. Like the car is going to sound how it's supposed to. And I'm sure it's going to be a much more enjoyable experience. Do you also get like sleepy and get a headache while you're driving? Or? <laughs> no, no, it's on the passenger side. So, oh, OK, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to worry as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I had that problem on my Sabaru when I first bought it, um, and and I just went through and replaced every single exhaust gasket, and uh, bought a carbon monoxide detector and just put it <laughs> in the center console of my car. <laughs> um, so it hasn't happened uh, since then. But also, I have zero flex joints in my exhaust right now, and I think that might be the rattle that I'm hearing when it's cold that I thought was piston slap. Uh, so I'm hoping that it's the exhaust rattling and not the piston wearing mm. out. But I, some, I, I bet some solid motor mounts would help that. Uh, with more rattling or what? Less, so less rattling because, um, you know, if your exhaust like can't flex, but your engine's still flexing, you can get all oh, kinds yeah. of rattles. Whereas the, the solid motor mounts, which I do have, um, can kind of keep everything in place a little bit better. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, drifting this thing or driving it, you know, real, real hard. So I don't know if I really need the, the pro, um, whatever level. Oh, I'll tell motor you. Mounts. So for me, the stock motor mounts to get like stock replacements is like, I think, I think it's like, Oh, they're close to 200 each. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, they're they're outrageously expensive. Um, by the way, when I worked at O'Reilly Auto Parts, I got those. So they were like 
selling them for like close to 200 a piece i got them for 30 dollars a piece on my employee discount so yeah yeah that's pretty wow. it's a big markup um <laughs> but uh <laughs> i have solid ones now and i paid like 120 for the pair and it is not it's not harsh at all like the car feels so much better it's way okay. easier to drive a lot less slop yeah it's you know, I actually kind of recommend it. Everyone talks about it like, oh, my God, it'll make your car undrivable. And my car has never been more drivable. It is hmm. the best. So all of my yeah. cars are basically undrivable as is. So, <laughs> there you, yeah, very, very something worth considering, Brian. You know, definitely. I, I recommend it. It worked very well for me. Yeah. Well, I was talking with uh, James and, and, you know, I was talking about my MR2 and maybe putting um like poly bushings in there and he's like no you don't want to do that if it's if it's driven on the street you know i i had such and such car and it it really fucked it up with that so i'm i've been a little bit hesitant to do any of that kind of stuff um i did do just oem replacement uh motor mounts on my sabaru um and that helped it a little bit because the old ones were a little bit worn but yeah i definitely didn't pay more than i don't know like 20 bucks each for them or something like that i don't remember how much it was yeah um but it is a kind of a pain in the ass to actually jack up the whole engine and transmission and put them in there but it's not as bad as on some cars i guess i always found subaru motor mounts in general to be very easy to work on comparatively right yeah i mean compared to other cars the motor mounts are not bad but as far as jobs that i actually want to do it's not high up on the list (laughs) (laughs) yeah well um i think that's that's all i've got so uh brandon how about you what'd you work on this week uh let's uh, i i finally got a heater for my shop and it's not quite as frigidly cold here as y'all are experiencing so i don't know like i kind of just went to the shop and stared at stuff a whole bunch and accomplished nothing that's a good way to do it yeah go out go out to the garage and stare at the project and just like chain smoke or drink a few beers that's that's my technique usually i gotta replace a whole window frame on my van like the entire mating surface for the windshield Mm. and it is daunting so like i'm just figuring out i I think i might have figured out a couple of uh different ways i want to try i gotta grab some sheet metal a big part of this week was like cleaning things up and figuring out like how much metal needs removed versus like what can be saved or welded around, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've got parts vans that I can pull some stuff off of, but I'm going to try and fabricate as much of this as I can. So, you know, building a tool list of things I need to work with sheet metal. I, I got to get a shrinker stretcher set so that I can get the radius across the, the length of it and stuff like that. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Are you going to be able to salvage the uh, the A pillars, or are you going to try and like, or do you think you might have to like just cut those out and get a clean new A pillars? No, nah, the A pillars, um, other than like the specific part where the uh, the windshield mated to it, are are fine. Oh god. Um, the problem is like the br- the biggest problem is the brace that goes from w- across the the top of the van from one A pillar to the other mm-hmm. is completely rotted out. Um, where it meets the A pillars, it like has rotted out so much that it is not currently in the van. Um, so Mm. that's, that's the biggest headache because not only, um, 
is do I have to like be able to like fabricate all of that stuff? And it's, it's really weird the way that it mounts into the a pillars. Um, there's also no structural integrity across that. So I have to be really careful about like what I remove first so that I don't deform the shape of the windshield. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, I'm going very slowly on it, but I just don't want to make some mistake, which I have, I have other vans. So if, if it gets out of shape, I can go get measurements from something else, but I would rather just, you know, make this as easy as possible. So yeah, get it right the first time. I'm hoping to be able to start welding on it this week. We'll see. Well, that's quite a project. Yeah. I've also been brainstorming. I might go ahead and like in the spring, if I can make some decent progress on the van, I might go ahead and swap out the drivetrain in my car, put my big block in it just cause I kind of wanted, I was thinking about doing a cam and, and valve train work on this motor. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do all that, I honestly might as well just swap out the drivetrain. It's an old enough car that like, you know, it's, probably a dozen bolts in an afternoon to pull the engine. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess and that's... you'd be putting a, a big block Chevy in there or some other kind of big block. No, I have a big block olds for it. Um, it's a okay. 455 olds. Um, I'm really fascinated by those motors because like the, you can't make crazy horsepower with them by which I mean like 600 plus, but they like, they're really good at making low end torque. Like before diesel motors were common, they were used where like a lot of diesel motors would be now, like in boats and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, okay. But you can also build them to get weirdly good fuel economy for what they are. Yeah. Um, so like I have an overdrive transmission. Teens? What's that? Like in the teens, possibly high teens. Low teens. <laughs> as far as you- <laughs> Wow. That, that is surprisingly good. If I put this overdrive transmission behind it and the right cam, I might be able to get it in the low twenties. That is oh, incredible, incredible. Considering I get that out of a turbocharged four cylinder right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so the thing is, I, I've been really like debating how I want to that motor to perform, and I think what I've decided is I'm going to make a relatively fuel efficient motor. Like I'm just going to put in a cam that makes like peak torque right around my cruising RPMs. And that's fine because with 455 cubic inches, you, I have enough to get up to speed. Like I'm, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't need something that's high revving. Uh, Oldsmobile motors are notorious for not wanting to rev high because the oil doesn't like to return to the bottom end. Um, so unless you machine the block, a performance modification for like a high RPM Olds motor is a low flow oil pump so that all the oil doesn't get stuck in the top end. Huh? Or yeah, at least. Very strange. Uh, I'm speaking authoritatively. I, I don't I don't know that based on experience, but a few people have told me like if you're turning high RPMs with a, a big block olds, put a low flow oil pump just so that yeah, everything doesn't get stuck in the, you know, top end. Seems like it'd be easier to um drill some more drains or have, like have a scavenge pump or something. Oh, I mean like you you definitely can do that. It's just definitely more work. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to bother with any of that like if I have that much low end torque, because like hot rod, uh, magazine did like a shootout years ago between like a bunch of like relatively stock applications and the 455 olds with light, like, I think it was cam and a header, uh, cam and headers was faster off the line than Hemi cars. Hmm. Um, just because the way it's built, it won't flow as high at higher RPMs, but off the line, they're a beast. 
So I'm yeah, I'm just mm. I'm I'm messing around with that. I, I found a really cheap 204R transmission. So I'm gonna go through that and maybe see if I can beef that up for a couple of hundred bucks to handle the 455. And if I've heard people saying that with a three speed they were getting like 16 to 18 miles to a gallon out of a 455. And the overdrive on a 200 is I think 0.67. So you know, I would be getting roughly thirty percent improvement over that. So, I mean, you're 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 talking yeah. at that point, theoretically, like you know, if we're bench racing here or bench fuel economizing or whatever, that's twenty four miles to a gallon. Yeah, that'd be pretty sweet. And I mean, like, it's not wholly unrealistic. My buddy has a sixty five Mustang, which, granted, they're really light cars. It's a three hundred two in it, but he's got AOD uh, transmission in it. Highway, he gets twenty eight miles to a gallon. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, a, a, a lot of uh, bench racing stuff on my end, but some sheet metal work and I'm back to welding at work. So I, I get to practice at work and then go work on my projects all fr- fresh and everything. And, you know, that's I guess that's really about about what I've done. It's, it's been cold. So my motivation is lacking, even though I have been able to do a little bit. Before we move on, uh, have you all ever seen this British guy named Alan Milliard on YouTube? Is that the dude that built the like some crazy like 300 cubic inch V twin? Yeah, yeah, he's he's done all kinds of crazy custom motorcycle stuff, um, and also uh, built his own downhill mountain bike. the The V twin he used um, the cylinders and uh, and top end ever, uh, from like a radial aircraft engine, and then built his own custom bottom end for it. Yeah, I, I saw uh, that. But what made me think of it uh, was Connor. Connor was talking about balancing the pistons and conrods and everything. Um, the the most recent one that he um, posted on YouTube was uh, he he took I think it was two Yamaha or Honda straight four cylinder motorcycle engines and cut them up and made a straight six engine out of it. And then the whole cust the whole like everything's custom, you know, like welded together the heads, the rocker covers, the um, the block, you know, everything. And he built his own custom um, crankshaft, uh, like machined up sections and then like press fit them together and like drilled and pinned the the connections. And he was going over how he balanced everything out. You know, he got these pistons from this motorcycle and these conrods from this other motorcycle and matched them up. And uh, it was all kind of nerdy stuff, but I I thought it was kind of interesting, like, and he's like, yeah, you know, it's just easy. You just, you know, machine this and then you weld it back together and then everything's uh, runs straight and true and there's no vibration and it's all fine. And it's like, uh, yeah, sure. OK, Alan, <laughs> you can do that. But it seems crazy. But it's since I've become a machinist, I've been running machines for like four years now. And I ha- like I remember I bought projects years ago. And then I would I'd be like, oh, you know, I just got to like learn to do this and that. And then I'll be able to like do all this myself. Except that was like learning to like TIG weld aluminum and like run a mill and like hone stuff. So I was like in over my head and I got frustrated and kind of walked away. And like one good example is I bought these like scrapped Harley cases at a, a swap meet for like 75 bucks because one side had a really bad crack in it. And like... I was like, oh, I'll be able to figure this out. And then I couldn't figure that out. But here I am five years later doing like that stuff routinely at work. And I just found those cases uh, a couple of weeks ago 
and start looking over them. And what I was so daunted by that I just gave up on it like five or six years ago, I look at it now and I'm like, well, shit, this is like two days worth of work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have, I have built up a crankshaft for a single cylinder Vespa moped. So that took me a good long while to figure out, get everything straight and true. I can't imagine doing it for six cylinders, you know, that'd be quite a bit more work, but I don't know. I guess if you're patient and you got, you know, the tools and indicators and lathe and everything for it. So there was some kind of motorcycle. I forget what the model was. It was, I think it was a, uh, Yamaha, but it might've been Kawasaki. I don't remember, but, um, back in the seventies, they were making them and it was a two stroke three cylinder. Oh yeah. Yeah. My uncle had one of those. Yeah. Uh, the uh, ones where Buffalo people were making like four or five and six cylinders out of them. Yeah. 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 The, the crankshafts were just a press fit together. So people realized that you could just weld cases together and weld heads and just press all of the bottom end stuff together. And they were just, you know, making these god awful death traps because even the three cylinders made an unmanageable amount of power. Yeah, I forget if we talked about this on the podcast or not, but um, there's guys in uh, Turkey that do that with moped engines. Um, so it's mostly, I think, the Peugeot mopeds that they do the same thing. They, you know, press everything together and they build up, you know, three and four and five cylinder moped engines that are, you know, like 200 cc. And then they'll uh, go like 70 miles an hour with these, um, which looks pretty scary, uh, especially with the, you know, primitive suspension and brakes that you get on a moped. Yeah, nice. I don't think I want to go 75 on a moped. Yeah, no. <laughs> There's that one Swedish guy that's uh, trying to do the 50 cc speed record right now. And I think last time he went to Bonneville, he only got it up to like 50 and he wasn't able to go in 2020, but um, he's like, you know, working on this new design. Um, uh, but yeah, check out his YouTube, too, if you want. It's a uh, two stroke stuffing is the name of that channel, which refers to like crankcase volume and stuff, I think. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't quite understand the whole science of two stroke engines. They're black magic as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, pretty much. Well, it's uh, probably uh, <clears throat> probably a good time for Brandon to uh, bring us into his topic. All right. Or uh, or oh, hold on, unless we want to take like a short break. Uh, yeah, I could I could use a little couple minute break. OK, I got to sneeze anyway. I didn't realize everyone was gone. I think I was just talking to thin air. <laughs> I'm back now. Oh, yeah. I was just saying that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting artsy here and I'm probably going to lead into this with a poem. Oh, that's perfect. Really? That's that's awesome. Drum supported the arts. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I'm excited for this topic. This is it sounds definitely <clears throat> like a good story. It's it's a lot. It's something I could probably have researched for another like two or three weeks and like just end up with this insanely exhaustive knowledge of like 
the peculiar ins and outs of small organizations in Detroit in like 1969. But like, <laughs> yeah, as far like I I get lost in the weeds. But I think as far as big picture goes, I've I've got this pretty under control. Nice. Yeah, I feel like any of the topics like you could spend plenty more time on any of them. Um, but I think we're doing we're doing well with like doing our due diligence so far. Well, dude, this is uh, just to me. It's so wild because there are about probably five or six like leftist newspapers that were floating around from this era that you know you can search and find like archived copies of them. Are like there's a couple universities in a you know a few hour drive of me where I could go and like look at the the old issues or microfiche or whatever. So like you can really get lost in the weeds in this because I think there's three newspapers that I'm going to bring up that are directly relevant to the topic. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, um, you know, honestly, the more I learned about it, like the night, the late 1960s was, we were closer to like having real revolutionary potential than I think I ever really understood. Um, Part of the reason I lean so hard towards Marxist-Leninism is because of what was going on in the world, but specifically in the U.S. in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I definitely, um, I can definitely understand that because there was, it was very popular in the U.S. specifically, and I mean, they were doing good fucking work. Um, Like, you know, they, they weren't flawless, and, you know, it's it's good practice to, to go in and, and see what they were doing wrong. And a lot of them do look back at like the organizational structure being like democratic centralism and, you know, being hardcore Marxist Leninist and say like, actually this was a problem. We did not do these things. Well, we, even as an organization with no genuine authority, we still had a tendency towards like authoritarianism within the ranks and so on and so forth. So like, there's valid critiques to make, but I still feel like it's yeah. It it proved to be one of the more effective vehicles for revolution that I've ever seen. Like yeah, it really no, took absolutely. a full government crackdown to silence that shit. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know, seeing it now it's like Jesus, we're nowhere near that right now. I mean, like oh, no. it's like we're it's interesting to like for me to get into like leftism as recent as I did, it looks like it's growing. And it's like, oh, it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. But then to look back and you're like, holy fuck, we have a long way to go, which is fine, you know, but I don't know if it's harder now or if it's easier now. I mean, I can't help but think it's probably harder now just by the fact that it's it, we did better back then. You know, I, I think the results speak for themselves where it's like, OK, to a certain extent, the conditions had to be better back then, because if they weren't we'd be farther along now is kind of my thinking. So like the conditions that we're currently in have really set us back. Well, I, uh, I'm gonna bum you out here in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cause you know, I don't know about revolution, but, uh, at least my chicken is tasty. So. Hey, (laughs) right. Are we all back? Uh, Uh, yep. 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 All good. Can everybody hear everybody? Mm-hmm. Yep. I hear cool. everybody. Mic check. Ha ha ha. 
<laughs> All right. Hmm. Any raging against the machine fans in the house? No. All right. uh, I haven't listened to them in forever, but yeah, I, I can still appreciate them. All right. <laughs> Same. I mean, I, I, I liked Rage Against the Machine before I understood the full nature of their politics because I was like 13 years old. So, yep. Yeah, same here. I, I liked Rage Against the Machine unironically when I was a fucking chud. So, <laughs> you know, then I like read their lyrics and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate in having never gone through any sort of right wing or, or like fashy reactionary phase. So, yeah, very fortunate you are. I, I can say that. No, it also just means that for a while I was a really shitty leftist because, like, that whole, like, kill the cop in your head thing is fucking real. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Like, you can be a leftist all day long and just not realize how much, uh, like, reaction is just built into the way you're raised and just the way that you think about things. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, Zach, it was... uh... It was you and Paul Ryan in the conservative Rage Against the Machine fan club, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was the two of us. Yep. <laughs> Why does everybody got to make it out like Rage Against the Machine was some sort of political band? <laughs> I don't understand why they have to bring politics into it now. I liked it better when they didn't do that. <laughs> Back before they existed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love that tweet. That's like, what machine did you think they were raging against? The dishwasher. <laughs> well, I mean, so good. I'm sure Paul Ryan would happily rage against any dishwasher that didn't do a perfect job. So, yeah, he would. Especially if that dishwasher is a person, like an immigrant. You know. Yep. Yeah, that's where most of his rage lies. Is in dishwashers the people not the machines <laughs> yeah it, the rage against the machine that brings immigrants across the border <laughs> yeah he's just mad at like transportation yeah <laughs> he's just mad at like <laughs> all forms of transportation <laughs> man this is like a double fuck you to paul ryan podcast now <laughs> well, i mean if you suck i'm gonna tell you you suck so. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy double sucks yeah, I mean, like, making fun of Paul Ryan's low-hanging fruit. Oh, God, yeah, the lowest. Uh, we're all back. We want to try and uh, uh, get back to it. Let's do it. Yep, yep let's, let's do, do it. Uh, all right. Uh, so we are about to embark on quite a journey, fellas. Um, most of everything that I got from today is going to be from the book Detroit, I Do Mind Dying. But as I've told y'all, there's, like, just so many resources that you can still find that are like first hand or like, uh, you know, primary sources from back in the day. Cause everything. So today we're talking about like, uh, revolutionary politics, unions, et cetera, et cetera, in Detroit in the 1960s, specifically focused around the Dodge revolutionary union movement and the league of revolutionary black workers. I'm going to, I'm going to get weird here. We're, we're starting this out with a poem because I found it and I, I absolutely fucking love it. And it was written by either a drum member or drum supporter. So, uh, deep in the gloom of the oil filled pit where the engine rolls down the line, we challenge the doom of dying in shit while strangled by a swine for hours and years. We've sweated tears trying to break our chain, but we broke our backs and died in packs to find our manhood slain. But now we stand for drums at hand to lead our freedom fight. And now till then we'll unite like men for now we know our might and damn the plantation and the whole Chrysler nation for drum has dried our tears. And now as we die, we've a different cry for now we hold our spears. 
UAW is scum. Our thing is drum. So that's wow. that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Love it. That's uh, so if that last line wasn't a good indicator, this is not going to be an especially pro-union episode. Uh, not in the, the normal way that you think about it. So like, let's, yeah, a little let's, bit more revolutionary, right? Well, because uh, a lot of this whole movement was spawned because the UAW kind of became complacent and started working a lot more with management than working to help the employees and improve conditions and so on and so forth. So to kind of set the, the landscape of Detroit, you know, it was kind of a racist hellscape. Um, you know, it, it has the benefit of being a northern state that at no point was ever a slaveholding state. But by some accounts, in the 40s and 50s, KKK membership in, I can't remember if it was specifically Detroit or just Michigan in general, was in the hundreds of thousands. So it basically wow. was as racist as current Michigan also is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's but sad. Because of uh, Detroit being what it was, uh, with a having like a huge manufacturing sector because of the auto industry, it was a huge hum, a huge hub for uh, migrant populations of all sorts. There were uh, a lot of Polish immigrants, uh, a lot of a lot, a lot of Arab immigrants, but then there was also just a lot of immigrants from the south, uh, from Appalachia. You know, the the great flight from from Appalachia, people having to leave to to go fine work. So Detroit ended up being a very peculiar sort of melting pot. And for as long as, uh, you know, labor struggles existed, management really liked to use black folks as strike breakers, as scabs, putting, pitting white people against black people, against brown people, pit, pitting everyone against each other. It's, it's what they do. It's what they still do. They've always done it. Uh, in... 1967, there was really one of the big precipitating events. This this was the George Floyd being killed of the 60s. Uh, this was the Great Uprising, or some people call it the Detroit Rebellion. It was July 23rd, 1967. There was a raid on an after-hours club that was unlicensed. Details. What, what is an, I'm sorry, what is an after-hours club? Oh, it's like a bar, but you know, after after all the other bars close, it's kind of where you go to. They still okay, exist. Sure. There's there's uh, a lot of them tend to be like industry clubs where like it's a place the bartenders can go drink after they stop tending bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, a lot a lot of them hmm. operate legally. So I've I've been in some that operated illegally. Like you definitely had to know somebody to to get in, so on and so forth. This particular one was not legal. Uh, it didn't. Okay didn't necessarily warrant like a massive crackdown but you know it, it wasn't legal um either way the the great uprising in detroit it lasted for five days 43 people died 33 of them were black and caused between 40 and 45 million dollars in damages like i wow don't think that is adjusted either so i think That's it was insane. like 40 million in 1967 dollars Jesus. It says twenty or excuse me, two thousand buildings were destroyed. Yeah, wow. It was, and so this was in response to them raiding and shutting down this after-hours bar. I don't remember this. I don't know the specific process from how it escalated from a raid on an after-hours club to 
a civil war, but that's the most of the sources I found compared it to the civil war. It was the largest uprising since the civil war. I I think that, I mean, I haven't seen any sources that are as up to date as to be able to compare it to what's happened in 2020, but I think that it went unmatched for at least a couple of decades afterwards as well. Like I don't know if anything has surpassed it up till maybe 2020. Not sure about that. Yeah, that's still, that's quite a bit. Yeah, it was it was no small thing. I mean, I really didn't know about it until I started reading on this, but it's not a hard thing to find information about out, find inf- information about. This this was a huge thing. And like that that was the general mood in America in that era. Like people were rising up and protesting and rioting and destroying things constantly. One of one of the things I loved was uh in response to to claims of rioting back then they were using the term uh, inst- uh shopping for free <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah see that's that's unapologetic i like that yeah i mean they steal from us why is this wrong for us to steal from them you know yeah but uh shortly after the great uprising uh some dudes got together and formed what is I keep seeing referred to as a ghetto newspaper, but to be clear, that is not being used as a derogatory term. They were trying to be the voice of, of the ghettos. And this was the inner city voice. Uh, the four founding members of the inner city voice were general Baker, John Watson, Mike Hamlin, and Luke Tripp. Now general Baker and John Watson are going to be big players in a lot of, uh, everything that's coming up. Mike Hamlin, a little bit more. So Luke Tripp, I, I don't see that he did a whole lot of, really like uh, standout work. Cool thing about General Baker is his actual birth name was just General. He was not a general. His literal fucking name was General. That's just cool. Nice. And one of the things that we're going to get into here in a little bit is how a lot of these organizations related to the Black Panther Party in Detroit at the time which it starts off amicable enough and kind of goes sour. John Watson, the big name for inner city voice. He was a black Panther party member at the time that they founded this inner city voice was a pretty unapologetic Marxist new, or at the very least leftist newspaper. Like the, all of the dudes involved in this had some background reading Marx and, you know, with revolutionary politics I, 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 a lot of the, the ins and outs of, of this get a little bit confusing for me because they were doing a lot in a very short period of time and there's fairly limited information about this, but kind of running parallel with the inner city voice, uh, there was another newspaper called South end, uh, South end was the Wayne state newspaper. It was just the school paper, but at some point, John Watson from inner city voice, uh, became an editor and took editorial control over the paper and started like bringing in his own people and took it from just the school paper that had a fairly low circulation to uh, being a full fledged, like revolutionary newspaper. It, it became a point of contention <laughs> because he was through whatever bureaucratic workings, he, they couldn't get rid of him, but they absolutely hated him 
Um, they did everything in the book, including like insane charges of anti-Semitism because they compl- in the 19, in 1967, they were complaining about Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And so of course they were, you know, anti-Semitic and whatnot. Uh, so nothing oh, yeah, is new yep. really. Yep. Oh, yeah. they love that the, one. The through line for, for this story is that in 2020, we're reliving 1967. Yeah. Every every struggle I see in the last year is a struggle that they were having 50 years ago, and it, it hurts to read. General Baker yeah. specifically, he, he had a military background, not a general, but, you know, uh, he studied Marx in college, visited Cuba in 64, and after he got back from Cuba, uh, he got a job at uh, Dodge, Maine, which is like the main Dodge plant in Hamtramck, uh, Michigan. And, uh, you know, eventually he was fired from there for leading wildcat strikes. Now, if you're going to get fired, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, he uh, we'll get into it more, but he got blacklisted from like the automotive industry and had to start taking jobs under assumed names and stuff. Mm. Now, the the lead in before we actually get into the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement proper, they there were a lot of problems with the UAE or UAW, um, UAE is something so much different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely problems with the UAE. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sure they would have complaints uh, about the United Arab Emirates as well, but uh, they weren't as, uh, you know, applicable to their lives at the time. <laughs> uh, no, man, um, yeah, I, I said this is not going to be the most resoundingly pro-union episode like you might expect, but it was because a lot of this was kind of shocking to me, it, in the 60s, there were so many claims that the UAW was basically just working alongside management. Like, they did good things for the workers. I don't think anyone's ever going to say that they're worse off for having a bad union, but they had a union that was not really looking out for them. It was, you know, people of color, especially black people, were massively underrepresented. There are just endless uh, claims of, you know, Racism, sexism. There was a large KKK membership within the UAW. Um, wow. At yeah, the person, what's that? I said, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, uh, it was a union, but I mean, it was just reactionary as shit. And one of one of the the focal points. Uh, I always say his name wrong, but it's w- Walter Ruther, I believe. Right? Does anyone know? I'm not sure who that is. Oh. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that you can find about him. He's he's a high profile UAW uh, leadership. Uh, there, is, I actually found some really good resources for Drum on some of the like Walter Ruther uh, archives that I found. Uh, okay. He was a socialist earlier in life, uh, but he he made it up to UAW leadership. And you know, I I could be getting some of his background credentials slightly off. But at one point, he was a socialist, and he did eventually become somebody who was incredibly critical of SNCC, uh, Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. Uh, mm-hmm. He did not like any of the revolutionary union movements. At one point in the 50s, he led a purge of communists and communist sympathizers from the UAW ranks. So, right. yep. yeah, by this point, any any genuine leftist tendencies that he had were were fairly gone. There there are arguments to be made that he was doing good stuff, but in the context of what we're discussing, he, no none of the rums were fans of his. So one of the 
specifically like black folks complaints about the UAW, there really wasn't any, uh, any avenues for them from within the UAW. Uh, they were generally given the most menial tasks and the most dangerous jobs. They rarely moved out of them. They weren't given any avenues to move up into skilled trades up to and including there was a trade school just outside of the city that was a popular means for people going and, you know, moving up from just factory work to being welders and machinists and what have you. And eventually the school implemented a policy that you had to be a resident of the city that it was in to attend it, which was a very targeted policy because that city was not overwhelmingly like there were no, it was, it was a white fucking town. Um, So basically they implemented a policy to make sure that no people of color were able to come in and get training to move up the ranks. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, and there was a, a one case in 1970, this is after the revolutionary union movement really has a foothold, but it kind of gives you an idea of, of the tone. And I've told you guys about this before, but in 1970, there was a dude named James Johnson he killed. He he got fired from his job and showed back up uh, like later in the day or the next day and killed two foremen and a job setter after being fired. And the conditions in the plant were so fucked up that he he got off. A black dude came in and killed two white managers and a white job setter, and was not convicted. So basically, no one wow. would testify against him, or. No. Um, so one of the, the bigger players in drum was this dude named Ken Cockrell. Uh, he actually ended up becoming a, a player in Detroit politics, like for the remainder of his life, pretty much starting at this point. He was notoriously an incredibly good uh, lawyer. He defended uh james johnson actually drum had this dude's back like he was not a member of drum by all accounts he was actually like a fairly quiet innocuous dude who just sort of reached his tipping point but like as a good testament to to the problems within the union there was a a shop foreman and i or i'm sorry shop steward and I, i don't remember his name but he had been getting in trouble with the union. Like he kept trying to actually fight on behalf of union members and he kept getting in trouble with management and he, he would get fired and rehired when the union would, would get his back. But he was generally viewed as a problem because he was actually trying to do his job of, of looking out for the employees. But what happened was he was literally on his last legs. It was, he, I think he was openly told that like if he fucked up again, he was fired for good. And it, so shortly after this happened, John Ta- or uh, I'm sorry, James Johnson, the guy who actually shot the three people, had gone to him and was trying to like improve the conditions. Uh, you know, he was filing complaints. He was he was trying to go through the proper avenues to have these things improved, and he was being ignored. And the shop steward told him, "I want to help you, but they've got it out for me just as much as they've got it out for you." Like, I can't do anything to help you. Um, and when James Johnson was caught after he had killed those three people, he was looking for that shop steward. Hmm. 
the uh, the Ken Cockrell quote that I liked said that uh, James Johnson might have been responsible, or he might have gone in there, but it was Chrysler that pulled the trigger. So basically, they mm, just they just made yeah. incredibly bad conditions. They persecuted anyone who tried to do anything about it, and you know there there was a point where people would fight, but then there was a point where they're like, "Well, I want to keep my job too, so I can only do so much." Another thing that people had an issue with was, you know, even within uh, manufacturing plants like this, some work still gets farmed out to smaller shops. Uh, the shop that I work at is about to take on a similar role. We're trying to get a contract for GM. And, you know, the, the complaint that they had for the UAW is one that I could levy right this fucking moment. There was never any attempts by the UAW to unionize any of the smaller plants that they were subbing work out to. So effectively mm-hmm. you were able to, you know, be a union shop getting non-union labor. And then there is just like the more generic charge that you can make against bigger unions like that of corruption. There, there was a lot of accounts of them being locked out of their union hall when they were supposed to have meetings because they were trying to prevent them from discussing this, that, or the other thing. There was some facility that was supposed to be built and it was going to be this uh, huge, like, I don't know. They, they, I think it was sort of like a vacation spot. Like if you were in the union, this was yours to utilize. Like you could go stay there or whatever, but it was, it was, it became like this I forget the term for it, but it, it was just a money pit. Uh, they they sunk millions and millions of dollars into this, and it became really apparent really quickly that it was a project for UAW leadership and you know any Chrysler or GM or whoever like officials could go there. But it, it was something like if every UAW member wanted to like go spend x like three, four, five days there for a trip, it was going to take like fifteen years for everyone in the UAW to get their turn. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it was it was originally a project that was billed as like for the workers and everybody really quickly realized that this was for management and uh, bureaucrats and so on and so forth. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I say that this is not a pro union episode. It it is. It's just. You always have to fight. Management always is going to have their boot on. What's that? You're you're not pro UAW. You're you're saying, I'm not saying I'm pro or anti. I honestly don't know enough about where it's at right now. Yeah. You know, in in 1967, I bet that you were a lot better off in a shitty union position for the UAW than you would have been if it was a non-union shop altogether. That makes sense. But I don't know, dude. If you're a working person, you just never get to stop fighting. That's just not the way it is in this world. Right. So in 1968, there was on May 2nd, there was a wildcat strike that was a response to a uh, work speed up at the Dodge main plant. I now I don't remember if this was the one, but the uh, J- J- uh, James Johnson, the guy who killed the three people. Um, the reason he was fired was for refusing to participate in a work speed up. They told him that there was going to be a work speed up. He said, no, they were fi- he was fired. So wait, what is a what is a work speed up? That, is that just where like management's like, hey, for the next week you're gonna work more hours and you're gonna work faster? Uh, well, you, you, a lot of this is like assembly line work, so yeah. it is exactly what it sounds like. I don't even think it was usually for the next week. I think it was, 
hey, from here on out, we're actually operating at 110% or 120. Oh, so this was where they literally sped up the actual assembly line. So it's yep. like you have to get your task. Oh, that's fucked. That's so fucked. That's so crazy that they even thought that it's like everyone's working hard. Like, how do you think they're going to work harder? But of course, we know the capitalists will always ha- seek to squeeze out every last fucking drop. Uh, and I guess that's the way they do it. Wow, that's again fucking crazy to me yeah and that was like there's there's tons of of stories in this that tend to get sparked off by a work speed up because you know the tendency of the rate of profit to decline you got to offset that somehow so you just tell your workers okay i know you're doing your best but now you've got to do 10 percent better than your best and you know universally nobody ever really fucking appreciated it so May Which actually, if you don't, if you don't mind, Brandon, yeah, um, just because I, I, I've come across it a few times, but is do you think you could quickly sum up the idea um, of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall over time? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm guessing you're not prepared for that necessarily, but if you have a good short explanation, um, it would help me, and I'm sure it would help plenty of other folks too. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I can do that. Um, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is a phenomenon that's discussed by a lot of economists. It's not just a Marxist thing, but Marx specifically addressed it and pinned the root cause on because you constantly have to be reinvesting into production when you are in manufacturing. So you can generate higher profits, but your actual profit margins start to decline. Um, it's one of the things that Uh, they say pushes towards monopoly because as you have to invest more and more into equipment and you start making less, like uh, let's, you know, let's create a hypothetical situation. Like you have a a, a widget that you, you'll make a dollar off of and you upgrade your equipment. And so now you can make more of them and make them faster and everything else. But because you reinvested into the improved widget making machine, you're actually not making a dollar off of each one of them anymore. You're making 70 cents. So your profit margin is gone down, even though your profits have gone up because you can make more of them. And after uh, endless cycles of this, you have to you start making less and less off of each individual thing. So you have to expand more and more. And it, uh, it tends to eventually lead to highly financialized economies like we're seeing right now in the U.S. because manufacturing starts to become uh, more hassle than it's worth. Like you're not making – even if you're making good money, you're really having to work for it in the capitalist sense that management is really having to ride workers for it. Yeah, so there's more and more cost. So like you know, the, the variable costs of producing – continue to go up and because you have to keep reinvesting to do things better you can make more money in absolute terms but it's that it's that margin that's going down exactly and so what happens is a lot of uh, economies become financialized just because if you can make money off of interest and weird investment things it's easier there's just less hassle there's less overhead there's less machinery yeah. yeah, another way sense. I've seen it described is um, like as a segment of the economy or a certain industry becomes um, more mature, like there's more uh, companies in that market, it becomes more competitive and they're driving down uh, prices 
just by competing with each other. Um, and so they're each making less profit as time goes on. Yeah, that's definitely a factor as well. Yeah, unless there's some big innovation or something that stirs things up. Yeah, so there's multiple parts to this, which is why, again, it's it's an overall tendency. But um, if I remember correctly, this was kind of a part where Marx was explaining, um, or, or he, he did partially explain that like because of this phenomenon, capitalism is hard for the capitalists too. They have to continuously exploit more and more from their workers, and they have to find ways to get better and better because they too are slaves to the economic system. Exactly. And, it's it's yes. one of the uh, famous contradictions within capitalism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to uh, help clarify that for anyone who wasn't clear on that phenomenon. I know I've come across it, but it's it's a nuanced topic for sure. Oh, it is. And I don't really like I don't know for a fact that there were anyone before Marx that actually tried to address it and explain it. Like I know even Adam Smith himself like acknowledged that it was a thing, but I don't know if he tried to explain it. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. I've never fucking read Adam Smith. Um, I've been meaning to uh, read more Adam Smith, but um, yeah, I've actually heard that it's, it's not as abominable as you might think, but no, I, I want to read it he, just so I'm versed in it, but yeah, he, he actually did have some good insights and there was a, and there was some things that he got wrong that he's like, Hey, you know what? I think this thing is going to work out because people are reasonable and then people were not reasonable. So it didn't work that way. <laughs> so that oh, was part I, of I've a, definitely read excerpts from Adam Smith where I'm just like, yes, this is a perfectly reasonable and valid thing that was yep. just said. Yeah, I like love that whole uh, I do, hand thing. I think that's yep. mentioned in one sentence in the whole fucking book, Wealth of Nations. Yeah, and it's and it's supporting, you know, and it doesn't actually work. Um, but no one knows what it actually means. I do love throwing Adam Smith at people who are like, oh, you idiot socialist. You don't know anything. And then I love throwing Adam Smith at him like, oh, this guy. And they're like, well, I don't care who that is. And I'm like, this is considered the father of capitalism. So like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, like I, I find that people who really stand Adam Smith don't know much about him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Back on track. Oh, I suppose. No, we're good. All right, so yeah, on, on May 2nd in 68, there was a work speed up at, at the Dodge main plant in Hamtramck, um, which Hamtramck, by the way, is inside Detroit. It's like this weird city that's fully encapsulated by Detroit on all sides. So I will refer to it as being in Hamtramck because like, there are other Dodge plants, but the one that I'm going to be referring to most often is, is in Hamtramck. Um, it's the, the uh, Vatican City of Detroit. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Hamtramck's weird. Like, is it so? Is it still a separate town? Well, okay. So in the last few years, I used to have some friends in Hamtramck. It like went bankrupt and was supposed to be reabsorbed into the city of Detroit, but I think something happened to prevent that. So I really don't know where it stands right now. Gotcha. I do know. Like, I th I think I left this out of my notes, or maybe it's just further down, and I'm not like I'm getting ahead of myself. But I remember specifically Hamtramck's got a big Polish immigrant uh, population at this point. So much so. And there were so many like Polish immigrants who had brought their politics with them from the old country that there was a Polish language anarchist newspaper in Hamtramck at this point. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. Like, I can't even imagine that. It, that just sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> I can't even imagine any kind of leftists being from Poland 
looking, especially <laughs> looking at it today, just like. <laughs> oh, dude, there were like not so much in this story, but if you look at a lot of like 60s and 70s uh, uh, stuff, there was there were a lot of uh, Eastern European immigrants who brought some hardcore leftist politics with them to the U S like you had, uh, Italian syndicalists and like probably some Spanish anarchists. And yeah, there were, there were a wide array of, of leftists from Europe that were migrating into the U S it leftism in, in, in that period when there was a lot of immigration to the U S is just wild. Um, yeah. Like you end up with a weird, little thing in Detroit where there's a, a Polish language anarchist newspaper. Uh, yeah, there, I love it. There was a lot of that stuff. I know I'll get into a little bit of it here in a little bit. But uh, yeah, so at, at that work speed up, I don't know a ton of the details. It was, I think, a fairly effective wildcat strike. I think it prevented the work speed up, but they fired a lot of people. I want to say it was like 70 or 80 people got fired uh, because of wow. this. That's a that is a very big number. Well, I think all but two or three, less than five people were not rehired. And one of those people was General Baker, the guy that I mentioned earlier. This this is the point where he had to take on an assumed name and yes, and, and got a job at one of the Ford plants. And on July 8th, same year, 1968. This was the first, uh, I believe this was officially the first uh, wildcat strike led by the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement. Uh, It was in response to just general conditions in the shop. There were 4,000 participants, 4,000 people uh, struck with them. Uh, It lasted for two and a half days, and they prevented the manufacturing of 3,000 cars. Wow. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it is worth noting the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, really the the Revolutionary Union movements in general, like the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which we'll get to in a minute, they made no qualms about it. They did not give a fuck if Chrysler made a single red cent. They they wanted their share of the pie. Like, they, they were... Drum is a Marxist Leninist organization. They did not care about the capitalist. They did not even really care about the union. They cared yeah, so about they would take the their, workers. What's that? Yeah, so they so they were fighting for like, we're going to fight you on all this stuff, but we want the full value of our labor. We, yes. we want to put you, we want this to eventually be owned by the goddamn workers. Like, we're not stopping until we're there. That's awesome. You know, you're, you're talking in the 60s. They, they were trying to fight for the 30-hour work, like 30 hours for 40 hours pay. And yep. Like they really like that's inspiring. The UAW and and Chrysler, Ford, GM, all could go fuck themselves. They wanted every penny that they produced, rightly fucking so. Love it. And it like uh, once once this was formed, this that was the most successful drum action. It was, I think, their first, and sadly, probably the most effective that they had. Because uh, they they had a pretty good amount of support within the plants at this point. Uh, at, this is around the point when the the South End effect, like that's that the uh, South End is the uh, the school newspaper that they mm-hmm. sort of like uh, took editorial control over. 
that's that became effectively the official drum newspaper because the founding members of drum were working as the editors of south end like gotcha they they did like a lot of fairly normal uh, uh tactics a lot of leaflet uh le- leafleting handing out uh things outside of plants they provoked a few wildcats um with sort of decreasing efficacy and and we'll we'll get to why that was going on the way it was uh hmm. they kind of just fucking didn't like anybody and um real quick i'm not sure if we uh mentioned this but a wildcat strike is when it's not with the blessing of the um union it's just the workers themselves uh making a strike going on strike without uh the organization of the union officials yeah that that's why you can get fired for it because you're usually violating the union contract when you do it right and we've seen some of those with the uh teacher strikes in uh was it 2019 i believe right yeah yep so yeah their tactics in a lot of ways you know were, were fairly ordinary um this is where we're going to get into their distinctly leftist tendency to infight. <laughs> um, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if y'all are familiar, but leftists uh, don't love anything as much as they love arguing with each other and having infights and blowups that just destroy everything. And yeah. this is not going to be a story that? that is free of that. What's that? How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Hot take. Uh, yeah, man, these these guys, they really like they they sort of started shit with everyone. Um so it is that kind of part of their downfall is like they're just they were they were revolutionary and they were not afraid to fight with management, but unfortunately they were also willing to fight with any kind of other leftist. So like I'm it wasn't even really the leftists like in most of this story, everything that I encountered was Marxist-Leninist. Most of them really didn't agree or didn't disagree much about the specific, uh, uh, you know, vehicle as much as individual tactics. And they also, and I think this is where one of their greatest flaws is, is uh, there was multiple ways of thinking. And some people thought that they should have a really like a small but intense and dedicated hardcore like vanguard cadre in in each shop you know it may sure. maybe you only have a few people but they are diehards and a lot of people kind of felt the opposite like well we can sacrifice like we don't need everyone to be the most intense if we have literally everyone so it was very much a quantity versus quality of mm-hmm. membership sort of argument yeah but I mean, you know, at this point, it's worth mentioning that the Dodge, like, we're probably not even the right fucking people to be covering this because most of this is a distinctly like black movement. I will get into some of the the white organizations that were running parallel, but uh, the the party line between Drum and the other Rums and then the League of Black Workers was that they were organizing the black and brown people of the area like they they did actually fight a lot for the rights of a lot of arab immigrants as well because that they they shared the same burden as the black people in that they were given the shit work they were given the dangerous work you know 
there's yeah they were they were like they were largely in the same boat yeah. more so than they were with you know there were other groups of working class people like white working class people who they could work with but like they were not treated the same and and that i think is important yeah, and, and we'll we'll get to that because there's another parallel organization called the uh, Motor City Labor League that was the white equivalent of uh, the Rums. That was a, again another like acutely Marxist-Leninist organization. Like you can still find a handful of uh, releases, like uh, writings that they released from from back then. Um, they were a lot harder to find information on, hmm. but um, there's actually one guy. Oh, John Taylor. John Taylor was a member of the Motor City Labor League, and he has a long little like, well, several page long bit inside Detroit. I do mind dying where he goes into details on the attitudes of a lot of the different organizations. You know, he he worked management. He worked in in the actual plants. He worked for some of the newspapers. The guy had like a, a wide variety of jobs, some more white collar than blue collar. And he saw a lot of different things, but he was always a friend of the worker. He was a Marxist-Leninist. He laid out some really valid critiques, um, especially as they pertain to him. You know, uh, Drum, and as we'll get to in a second, Elrum, which is uh, the Eldon Avenue manufacturing plant, um, they they really didn't even like like I, yeah I shouldn't say they didn't like white people, but they were wholly unwilling to organize with them. If, if they were uh, handing out leaflets or pamphlets outside of a plant, they refused to hand them to white workers. Gotcha. They, they even uh, that guy himself, uh, uh, John Taylor, said that after he became friends with them and they kind of knew who he was, but maybe not everyone knew who he was, he was having to have uh, friendly drum members sneak him their literature. <laughs> and you know there were weird things because drum was one of the it was a lot of the younger people in the plant there there were a lot of older black people who had been in the plants for years and had different ideas and different attitudes I've, I've read in other places that just because of like the history of slavery a lot of uh like everything had to be done in so much secrecy that that sort of culture developed very strongly in black communities of, of being secretive about the actions that you're taking. So a lot of, there there was a lot of conflicting approaches to how to do this. And a lot of times the older black workers would not agree with them. And instead of like trying to bring them into the folds, uh, they'd call them uncle Tom's and honky dogs. And just, yeah, like just, call them fucking pigs. Like they were really disparaging to people who didn't agree with them rather than trying to bring them into the folds. There was a, a big, uh, faction of like, cause as the organization was larger, uh, at one point it wasn't ideologically pure. They were largely ML, but that doesn't mean that everyone had done all of the reading and had done all their homework assignments and turned them in on time, et cetera, et cetera. Like, Y'all know how it is, dude. If you're a fucking leftist, you're supposed to have read a full fucking library. And yeah. some people don't have the fucking time for that. So there was like a, a big vein of black nationalism in this. And that tended to be uh, divisive and alienating for a lot of people. Throughout several of the wildcat strikes that they 
organized. There was a lot of criticisms that they just acted too quickly. Uh, they didn't really build a large base. They didn't have strike funds. They didn't prepare thoroughly. So there was one particular strike um, that Elrom led that ended up like devastating the members of their org because they led a, a wildcat strike and then most of them got fired. So yeah, that that sucks. That's we don't. We, that's generally best avoided. It was. Their hearts were in the right place, but a lot of it just boiled down to, it, you know, it, when they wanted to improve things and they didn't want to wait. And none of us do, but sometimes you have to. So some th- there's a constant struggle in this whole story of like big picture versus little picture. Yeah. Some people we'll, we'll get more to it, but there were a lot of people who wanted like national organizations and really a lot of ideological God, I lost my train of thought there. Yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, uh, big picture people and a lot of little picture people. A lot of people really didn't care if they were connected to an organization in Chicago or Los Angeles or Oakland or New York or whatever. They just wanted to improve the material conditions in the plant where they worked. Yeah. So an- another one of the big rums was as i mentioned el rum it's the uh eldon avenue manufacturing plant so it's the eldon avenue revolutionary union movement this one actually became bigger than drum um at its peak it had more members than they ever had at the main at dodge main in uh 1969 uh january 1969 el rum presented the uaw with a list of grievances and a few days later, that was when they they went on a, uh, organized a wildcat strike. Uh, their grievances were they were grotesque. There was just an endless amount of complaints of you know w- women were being sexually harassed. They were being overtly racist towards black workers. Um, safety complaints were wholesale ignored. There's just so many stories about people being killed. By some like machinery that was supposed to be decommissioned for repairs and wasn't just doing unsafe things because they were forced to it, it just it never fucking stops like the union was not doing its fucking job and people were dying because of it and that was what caused the rums to form so you know this is the wildcat strike where they shot themselves in the foot they managed to keep out two-thirds of the workers at the Eldon Avenue plant on the first day and half on the second. But after that, it was over. And so many of the Elrum members were fired that, that it really like it, it cut the movement off there at the knees. And again, uh, John Taylor in his excerpt, he goes into a lot of details on, on stuff that they did wrong. Like they really did not prepare for that strike. They got mad or, you know, they were, they were impassioned. I mean, that makes it. You, you're like, this is this is so egregious that everyone will be on our side. Now is the time to strike. They they fucked up really bad this time and everyone's going to agree with us. And so you think that, yeah, that passion is what's going to win the day. But un- unfortunately, without strike funds, without that sobering realization that your jobs are actually on the line, um, th- things can go awry very quickly. And, and so a, a big criticism of Elrom, especially during that wildcat, was they wouldn't talk to white workers. 
Like they were not actively trying to bring like it's one thing to say like I, I'm a big fan of the model that the Rainbow Coalition did in Chicago, where you where you had the Black Panthers working alongside the Young Lords, working alongside the Young Patriots organization. Which, for those who don't know, uh, basically the Black Panthers were the Black Panthers, the Young Lords were the Latino version of the Black Panthers, and the Young Patriots were the white version of the Black Panthers in Chicago. So that that is a model that, especially for the era, ha- had proven some efficacy. It, it it was able to effectively organize along cultural lines, uh, but still come together for the big picture so that it was a unified movement. Uh, yeah, no, that was a, as a model, that was something that like Fred Hampton can be credited with. And it was a good idea. And obviously it was threatening enough um, that it, it did. Got him killed. to, yeah, it, it led to literally J. Edgar Hoover personally getting involved. Like, okay, this shit's too dangerous. It's it is a good model, and unfortunately, at the time, I understand why there was animus between you know these different cultural groups. And it's like we know now that it's like looking back, we're like, yeah, if we if they could have worked together better, things would have maybe worked out a little bit better. But we also know that like given the time and given the politics of the day why that was it was a lot harder then than it is now like now we can be united much more easily from that perspective than than they could back then um we have other struggles now but um like it it, it definitely you see now when you look back and you're like damn that really sucks that they you know we get why they did it they were in a that was the situation they were in um, but yeah, it may, it may have looked a little different if the approach had been a, a little different. I mean, I, I get it, especially in that era when there was so much of like de facto or official segregation. Even if you are completely anti-racist and egalitarian across the board, it's still just going to be easier to organize amongst the peace bill that you have the most in common with. So yeah, it's it's a good model. In my opinion, in America, it might be the best model that we've ever had and is still worth pursuing. One of the big problems as it pertains to this is that this is not the model that Elrum was pursuing. No, yeah, and that's that's um, well that's what I that's what I mean. Uh when when I'm talking about looking back, you know, that was a real issue and you know, like I think you said it right, the Rainbow Coalition was something different from what, you know, this group was doing. And that seemingly was a better a better method well and this uh, this will get into like sort of the the split between the league of revolutionary black workers and the black panther party but and you know at 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 that point a lot of the the members of the individual rum in that plant they weren't thinking about this on an ideological national scale that's what i was going to say was uh, a lot of the split with the black panther party and like why they this doesn't quite jive with the model of the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago is that a lot of these things are big idea, ideological sort of things. And the revolutionary union movements largely thought of themselves as just singularly working to improve the condi- like the material conditions in the plants where their members worked. They yeah. weren't necessarily trying to win everyone over, very fucking obviously, but 
they re- like they weren't fighting. I don't want to say they weren't fighting an ideological battle because clearly at this point you definitely are. But they were trying to do it on the front lines, on the factory floor, and they weren't interested. A lot of them weren't interested in expanding outward. It's eventually what caused the entire like rift between the the League of Revolutionary Black Workers was the inability to decide whether they were doing big ideological picture or in plant looking out for the individual workers. So I think like almost we can take away that like you kind of always have to be doing both. It seems like just in general, you have to consider both because we want to act locally, right? In our, in our respective workplaces, in our towns, we want to organize there on the local level, but we need to also be considering the bigger picture. Okay. I'm so glad that you didn't say the, the like act locally, think globally. I would have, oh, I would have yeah, no, I didn't drive out. I was waiting for it. it. I, was, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, I really thought it was about to happen. Fist no, no. And I was like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't bring it down to a to a slogan. I have real thoughts. Okay. <laughs> It just it just seems that like that's where that was going, and I, I was like, you can't be that trite, and you weren't. So you know, to to your credit, I'll take all the credit I can get. Yeah. <laughs> but really, the last thing I have to say about Elrom, and I don't even know how to shoehorn this in. This is this is a weird thing, and I'll explain myself. But this will be the last thing I have to say before we get to the founding of the League of uh, Re- Revolutionary Black Workers. Is in a lot of this material. They talk about this dude, Jordan Sims. And I, I, if you Google the dude, I can't find anything about him except for references to him and other stuff. And what it boils down to, and I couldn't even find the, the pages that I had bookmarked in my actual book that went into more detail on this. So I'm really like struggling with the details on it. But uh, Jordan Sims was not a member of any of the revolutionary union movements. He was a dude. He got fired during one of the strikes, but he ran for, I think, president of the local that represented uh, the Elden Avenue plant. And I don't understand how unions work. I didn't know that you could literally get fired from the factory and then run for a position in the union. But apparently that's how it was. But there were... uh, uh, it seems that Elrum supported this dude. Um, they were very critical of him because they did take a very, like, like Leninist position of like, no, if you get this elected position, that's basically reformism. Uh, they were worried that he was going to get into this position, and then he wasn't going to be a worker, and he was going to start kowtowing to management and and just doing what he's told told and towing the line. By all accounts, that's not what he did. He actually seems like somebody who stood up for the rights of the workers through and through as much as I could find information about him. But the specific thing that caused a, a, a bit of a, a, a kerfuffle at that plant was just to give you an idea of, of the problems that they were having with the union with the election. It was Jordan Sims, who was a black guy against the other dude who was white and they got locked out of the union hall and like had to break in. And I, 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 th- I might be mixing up two stories cause there was a lot of this stuff, but they were really trying to pull some shady shit around the election of Jordan Sims. He did get elected, 
But there seems to have been a lot of conflict surrounding this election because he had the backing of El Rum, but even then only sort of, and everybody who opposed him and didn't like the revolutionary union movement were like trying to tear him down saying like, Oh, El Rum loves this guy. He's, he's a revolutionary. You don't want him in the, in leading the union because he's going to take it in this in like awful direction, you know, in the same way that Joe Biden's a Marxist or something, you know, like that's the attack <laughs> yeah. that they had to levy against him because he had the support of a radical organization by all accounts, Elrum themselves did back him, but like cautiously. They weren't like all about this dude. They were just like, yeah, he seems good. Let's give him a shot. Yeah, so he was like, they weren't crazy about him, but they're like, yeah, this is who we're going to back. He's not perfect, which a lot of people would kind of, I feel like, liken to like a Bernie Sanders where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not, he's not quite, he's not a full leftist. He's not great, but like, he's the best option, clearly. Um, yeah, I, so, I mean, like, I actually found one of the articles. Uh, it's it's a scan of an article from the newspaper where they were like, I, I don't even remember which paper this was in. But yeah, they it's it's in uh, Wayne State's Walter Ruther uh, archives that the who was the UAW like leader at the time where they go into uh, how. Uh, they were trying to rally uh, a whites against this dude by saying he had the support of black militant auto workers. Yeah, that'd be a selling point for me. But Yeah, I'd, I'd be <laughs> fucking on board. <laughs> but then that would be extra funny because they wouldn't give a fuck about your opinion or want your support or help. <laughs> <laughs> so like th- there was a lot of times when they really weren't doing themselves any favors. Sure. Now, now, just just so I'm understanding, Jordan Sims was running for uh, a local branch of the UAW. Yeah, right? he was okay. he was uh, uh, running for a position. I, I I don't know the structure of of the union um, then or now. I mean, I have not been blessed with a union job ever. But uh, yeah, me neither. Yeah, they're harder to come by nowadays. But uh, yeah. Yeah, he was he was running for a more local pos- position. Like I think he was running for something in their specific local. Okay. So he he wasn't ever like he wasn't on track to be like some like highfalutin, you know, top-tier union guy that was going to get all the kickbacks and mob money and all that shit. He was he seemed to be genuinely concerned about the workers and doing what was right. And like I said, by all accounts, after he did win the election contentiously, um he did continue fighting for people like it it seems like people were a fan of his it's it's wild because all of the literature that i can come across for uh the rums for the motor city labor league he's brought up a whole lot in detroit i do mind dying outside of of by 1975 i can't find hide nor hair of him if you google search his name with like uaw or rum or anything like that I, i don't find anything except occasional like newspaper articles from in, in any of, of the radical rags that were, were floating around at the time. So like he seems to have been a very important figure to a select group of people at a specific point in time and then just became another like regular ass dude doing his job. And if uh, y'all want to take a break, that is a good stopping point for before we get into the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. All right. That sounds sure. good. We'll, 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 we'll sounds stop good here. 
We'll probably come out with, uh, you know, part two uh, following that. We're going to make you fight fire with fire, bitch. We're going to make you fight fire with water, bitch. We're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight the solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight with socialism. <laughs> Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, they're gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers Applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.